But that's that mentoring experience. And that's what podcasts and that's what we hope our podcast become for people is an opportunity to to almost like a masterclass situation. Because uh, there are teachers out there who, who are rock starring, uh, who understand what it takes to do what we do. But nobody knows who they are. Nobody's heard their voice. No one's, no one's, you know, there's not a camera in every teacher's room capturing all these moments and, and putting them in a file. And you may have never experienced it, and then you may listen to it on a podcast, and then all of a sudden you experience it, and it's like, oh, I remember them saying, okay, this is how you, okay, got it. And even though it may be like, no, nah, I can't do that, but it gives me an idea. It sparks an idea in my mind of what I can do. Welcome back to Value as Value, everybody. My name is Kyle Krieger, joined by my guy, Wilkie V. Law III. Will, what's happening? Oh, man. Chilling. Um, we were talking off air before, and I told you that yesterday I actually went to a restaurant for the first time since the pandemic um, to celebrate with my brother, who just turned 54. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a super interesting episode because it brings me around to something Wilkie always tells me is that, you know, if, if you're vibrating at the right frequency, you will you will find people who are on your same wavelength who are doing the same things you are and my wife and i were on our honeymoon in austin texas well like not even in like way outside of austin texas uh, at this quaint little resort and on a random monday afternoon we decided we were gonna go do a wine tasting and we got there because the the resort had a, a tasting room on site we got there and or I guess what is what is the proper term for you, Viv? Is it sommelier? Is it bartender? What what do you usually go by? Um, you know, we're just we're servers. Some people get really fancy and call us wine stewards or ambassadors, but I, you know, we we pour wine. I'm just a server. I, I you know, so so that that's that's what we're known as there. We're 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 wine tasters, we're servers. <laughs> Well, the the voice you heard there is uh, Viv Elliott, who happened to be our our wine server that day, and I don't even know how we got in into the conversation of you being uh, a professor and me being a teacher. But I mean, it was like a two hour conversation between you and uh, my wife and myself that was just like so good. And and I I had to work up the courage at the end before we left to ask you if you. Uh, wanted to be on our podcast so we really appreciate you uh taking the time to join us oh thank you thank you for having me and i do i um i do would you just tell the story of how you how you have your pen name viv elliott because you just told it to us and i think it's amazing and it makes me want to have my own pen name yeah i uh had early aspirations to be a very successful poet uh hasn't quite happened although i have seen some publications but i thought you know my real name just didn't have that oomph that really needed uh and so i really became fascinated with t.s Eliot's first wife uh vivian haywood elliott and i just think she was an amazing person and so i was like okay that viv elliott there we go that sounds great and my teachers in undergrad really embraced it and 
that that's how I became known as Viv. Everybody has known me as Viv Elliott since uh, since undergrad. So it's been it's been pretty awesome, actually. It's <laughs> fantastic. So, like you said, we we met. I guess now a little more than or a little less than a month ago when we were we were on our trip, and it was just so great to hear your perspective on being a college professor during the pandemic and and also being a mom during the pandemic and the struggles, you know, you had with, um, you know, education out there, especially what, you know, what really struck my wife and I was the fact that, you know, there are kids out in the hill country out there outside of Austin that literally where they live can't get any service and, and talk about. So those are some of the things that we want to touch on today, but um, could you just give our listeners a little bit of your background and how you got to where you, uh, where you are teaching and, and doing all that stuff? Sure. So I I knew early on um, that I wanted to be in education in some form. So I went to Concordia to pursue a degree in uh, undergrad degree in education uh, and quickly got weeded out from the K through 12 spectrum. Uh, my student teaching um, was less than spectacular. I, I was in a lower income school. Um, where the students, it was a middle school, students were required to change classes um, prison style. So that means that they were lined up against the walls. They, could, they had to look forward. They couldn't talk to each other. And that's how they changed classes. And um, that's how they went to lunch. That's how they did things. And it was uh, bizarre. And I said, I don't think I can be useful in this environment. Um, so I was quickly weeded out. But I knew I still wanted to be in education. So I kind of fished around a little bit for what that would look like. Um, and then I said, you know, I'm just going to get my master's and, and get into the classroom uh, in, in, in higher education. And so that's what I've been doing since uh, 2015. So, so that's kind of where I, I went with that. I always knew I wanted to be an educator. It was just sort of finding my niche. Um, so... Yeah, I, I I find it interesting what you said is the the prison style lines mm -hmm. uh, because Kyle and I when we started working together we worked at an intermediate school in Houston and that's what we would do we would line our kids up outside our doors and then they would transition and rotate around to the next class uh, it wasn't quite as um, stringent because we didn't you know, we allowed the kids to talk and to, you know, do different things, but there were some teachers who took that, that, that type of CO type of, you know, approach with students standing there, you know, make sure you're facing forward and, you know, and, and I, I always joke with people and I say, you know, ask, asking kids to sit in the line and not to talk is like getting a dog in accident not to bark. Mm -hmm. You, kids are that's part of their nature is that social aspect is so big and it almost makes you ask what do we socialize them for when you use the term like prison style conformity like what are we really preparing them for in the future looking at doing things that way yeah I think one of the things I found very disturbing about that was you're in a, a middle school in a lower income neighborhood and you're already using terms in that regards to these kids. So it already gets them thinking in a way that, 
is unproductive or counterproductive to education in general. Um, I remember doing dual credit for the community college that I, I started teaching for right out of grad school, um, where it was a similar thing. There was an armed police officer in the middle of the hallways with his hand on his gun, sort of monitoring these kids. So my thoughts on that were very, again, this is why I'm not in high school K through 12, because these types of things are are going on and these kids are sort of being acclimated to a culture that I feel they shouldn't be exposed to. Learning should be a safe environment. You know, they're, they're always safe zones. And I tell my kids that when hot button topics come up and there's violence and, and, and things that people are really getting buzzed about, you know, academics is a safe zone. It should be a safe zone. Um, and when things like that are introduced um, into the narrative of academics, it makes it, um, it's just counterproductive. You know, you shouldn't have an armed police officer standing in hallways at a high school that, that, that teaches the kids something or it makes, it makes them feel a certain way, right? A level of criminality that they, that's just not there, you know? Um, and so those, those things really, you know, caught me early on. Uh, that sort of language and, and presence in the K through 12 was just, um, it was really sad for me. I'm, I'm a sensitive person. I, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I do love your, your self-awareness though, to have recognized that like, yo, I, I put this time in to be a K-12 educator, but this is this is not for me. I I think there are a lot of people who have that feeling and don't don't take the step back and then they go into that system. And and I just I remember how taken aback I was when I first went to Houston and I realized that kids had to come through metal detectors. Like mm-hmm. I'm a small town Wisconsin kid, like I'm not saying a kid I ever went to high school with had a gun on him at school, but I promise you that at most points in most days, you could have gone out to the parking lot and you could have found a couple in somebody's truck or somebody's car. And at the time of high school, I never would have like pieced that together because I never would have thought anything of it. But like even even that and even Wilkie, you know what Wilkie said about us lining our kids up. Like I had never even thought of it that way. I when I when I started teaching with him, he had been there for a while. It had been established that was just the way kids did it. And I had never thought of it that way of like, you know, that level of control saying you have to walk a certain way. It's. Yeah, it's perpetuating that, that that school to prison pipeline, and it, it it definitely is something that now, like hearing you say it now, bit really makes me want to re-examine even my day to day now. Um, because again, you still see, and it's funny because the, you could almost say there's teachers who teach with that prison style mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas my classroom is more of a co-op, you know, you know, I have teachers who call me the hippie. Uh, I guess that's the Austin influence in me, but I believe it's important to teach kids things like how to breathe, how to self-govern, how to self-discipline yourself. Um, I shouldn't have to tell you what not to do if I give you the principles of what should be taking place. If I give you the principles that you should live by, then those principles alone should be strong enough to guide and direct, help you guide and direct your own self. 
you know, because my thing I always tell kids, either you learn how to control yourself or you're going to be put in environments where people are going to control your environment for you. And you don't want to be in that situation. You know, and I think that we really need to re-examine how we look at our schools, even from the construction of schools. You know, why are schools being built the way they're being built, you know, now, instead of something totally different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, for me, looking at, you, you know, like I told you, Viv, where, where I teach is like six or seven miles from where George Floyd got killed. So this past week, it's been really, really tense and it's been a really strange environment. And we were having a discussion in class and one of the questions we asked was, do you feel safe with this added police presence around your area? And it was, I mean, it's not surprising now, but how stark the difference was between the kids that said they, the police made them feel more safe and the, and the kids who said it didn't make them feel more safe. And, and it's just that even having that discussion in a, in a school is like, I mean, you know, Will, Will's talked about this too. Like my kids, when we were, we were also, cause we were, re- so in their English class, they were reading to kill a mockingbird. And, you know, we're, you know, in my social studies class, I worked with the, the, the English teacher because we came to the part where Tom Robinson is, is trying to escape and he gets shot 17 times and it just happens to be playing perfectly with what's going on. And we were talking about somehow got onto the conversation of schools and the kids couldn't believe that they still have to use the bell system because at one point, you know, they were raising kids in an industrial age to teach them how to be a factory worker. Like they were, they were floored by even having that and the remnants of that. So I can't, I can't imagine what it's like to be in a school where you are treated like an, literally treated like you're an inmate. Right. And I think that colors the way that they then govern themselves, not just on that campus, um, you know, shenanigans that they're pulling, um, but it it filters on into into the way they they see people and things outside of the classroom. Um, and again, I feel like that's so counterproductive to to learning. Um, it, it, it's just a really sad situation. So when they come to me in college, you know they're they're very unprepared for productive classroom time. Um, because they are so indoctrinated with this idea that, you know, they are non-entities, they're statistics, they're people to be monitored, they are things to be controlled. Um, and, and that that really does affect the way that they see themselves outside of that and then where their future, uh, you know, the future of, of, of where they're going, what they want to do with their lives um, is colored by all of that. And it's, it, it's just, um, it's real eye-opening, you know, to have some of them in class talking about that and and their experiences. Um, of course, these dual credit students that I was uh, teaching with the police officer standing in the middle of the hallway, um, you know, I'm seeing them come up in my Comp 2, my American Lit, my Brit Lit, and, um, and, and, and them still struggling with those types of issues. You know, what, what do I do in college? Um, you know, that, that, that sort of uh, aspects of 
well, we don't have this anymore. They don't know how to, they don't know how to deal with it, you know, because they've been so indoctrinated into this, this idea that they're little, little pogs, they're, they're, again, things to be monitored, um, that level of criminality um, that they feel uh, makes them really defensive, which is something that I have to work at breaking down in my classroom. Um, so all of that uh, it really does, uh, it, it affects them, you know, in ways that I, I don't, I'm not sure uh, K through 12 administrators uh, fully realize, you know? Well, yeah. And, and as much as we like to think that our generation was so different, I mean, I remember being 12, 13, 14. And if you would have asked me to like get in line and line up and stand out with my friends, I, I would have had a, I would have had a really, really hard time doing it. And granted in this particular situation, I probably would not have been one of the students that was as closely monitored. I'm assuming in, in this scenario, but even just, I mean, 12 to 13 to 14 year old kids are 12 to 13 to 14 year old kids. Like they're silly and they want to explore. And I think it, this is not a direct correlation, but even, you know, we were talking with teaching during the pandemic. Like I have this, this conflict in my mind at my school because I am told to keep the kids in one room the whole day because of safety. We don't want them cross-contaminating. But then I look at them and I'm like, they're in the same room all day. Like they need to get out and see other people. So I think, I think that's a really, just what you've said there has really opened my mind to that because I have like the competing ideas in my head of like, well, my administration wants to keep the school open and they've decided that keeping kids in one room is the best way to keep the school open. But, you know, is that what's best for the needs of my kids right now? I mean, I, that's something I've been thinking of, but you just kind of put a finer point on how important it is to let kids be kids. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to, because when we, when we met down there, you, you had talked a little bit about your experience of being a mom during the pandemic and, and, mm -hmm. and um, doing school that way. So I'd love to hear. I mean, obviously, I'm not a parent, but I'd love to hear you and Will kind of share your experiences of of parenting and teaching and educating your your own kids during the pandemic. What's what's it been like for you in particular? Well, for me, it was it was very difficult. I am a single mom. Um, you know, I work full time. Being in the service industry, the hours are uh, very sporadic. So, I mean, for instance. I went to work at 11 o'clock yesterday. I didn't get home till almost nine. You know, we had a big event. Today, I'm looking at a 12, 13 hour day. You know, my 17 year old, she also works. So my little one kind of gets shuffled around a little bit. Um, and that makes it, made it really difficult for, especially, you know, my, my, my little one, she's in elementary and she is a very motivated uh, individual. She's, she's got a lot of energy. Um, so the expectation for her to sit in front of this computer and log in and the rollout was, um, of her elementary school was really poor. So all the different teachers had all these different things and she had to click on these links and then click on this one to create this and then click on this thing. You know, it was all these clicking around. I'm like, she's nine. Like, it doesn't matter how tech savvy she is. It doesn't matter how tech savvy any of these kids are. You want them to log in at this time 
to this classroom, do this, upload this here without adult supervision. I mean, what this is why public education is there. I mean, I send my my daughter to a school to learn, um, not to come home. And you know, so I was really conflicted about all of that. I did wind up pulling her out of uh, the institution to do a finer. Um, she's going to be online now, but it's more um, more systematic. She can do one thing at a time. It's it's you know, she's no not uploading things. She's just she's there. She's learning very you know, traditional remote style, which is what I thought the kids were going to be doing. Um, that's not how it played out. And so it wound up being very difficult for me and um, and my older daughter to help her navigate that. And had it not been for a friend of mine who was working from home, sort of taking her in for those, uh, you know, a few weeks and she got all that stuff done and she got caught up, it would have been really hard for her to pass you know, the fourth grade, <laughs> just plain and simple. Um, so, so I have a lot of thoughts on, on, on remote learning in, in that um, scenario for, for kids of her age, you know, just unless you're 100% full-time stay-at-home parent, it was a, it was hard. It was rough, you know? I agree. It, it was, it was uh, we kept our daughter home for the first first nine weeks. Um, and I, my, granted, my daughter's 14, so I wanted to give her the opportunity to <clears throat> make those decisions. So she wasn't 100% comfortable at the beginning. I wasn't really comfortable. So I was like, yeah, go ahead. You can stay home. Um, <clears throat> she's a very bright young lady, you know, not one that I have to worry about. I can kind of, you know, I, knock on wood, but she's one of those kids that she really I've enjoyed watching her grow and develop because she's become so mature. And so when I saw her almost like in tears because the workload was just overbearing and granted first year in high school, she's a freshman, <clears throat> you know, all these new classes, all these new experiences that she's having in our school where she went to middle school was pretty, we're pretty tech savvy. Like we adopted using a lot of the online platforms just kind of as a blended learning model within our classroom the prior two years. So she's had two years of experience working in Schoology, Schoology that, that we use in our campus. Um, you know, so she understood how to not navigate Google Classrooms and how to use the Google Docs and create Google Slides. But still, it was so overwhelming for her. Like, I'm literally meaning like with my wife and myself helping her <clears throat> 11, 12 o'clock at night to try to get these assignments done. Um, you know, and I, and I believe teachers just overloaded them. And she was so overwhelmed. She was like, I just want to go back. <clears throat> I can't do this. And so we put her back in school uh, because her grades have began to slip. We noticed that her personality has started to change. Um, and that, that, again, I don't think as adults and as educators, we take into account that social aspect of school that's so very important to the learning aspect and <clears throat> whether you're doing it virtually to create it virtually you literally have to intentionally go in with the idea i'm going to create a virtual society for kids not i'm going to teach them online because teaching them online they're not going to have their cameras on they're not going to be engaged they're going to be listen have you playing in on this side with you muted and 
watching a YouTube video on this side and not really paying, you know what I mean? That's what they're going to do because it's not for them. And so, you know, I had, we had candid conversations. She was like, daddy, maybe they should try to do this. Maybe they should try to do that. And I was like, you know, maybe we should just try to listen to kids and ask kids, how could you best learn in this environment in order to create one that's beneficial? But <clears throat> I couldn't imagine having a fourth grader or let alone a, a kindergartner. You know, my sister has two, a pre-K and a kindergartner, and you want them to do what online? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're barely learning how to write, and you want them to, to to know passwords and do all these. I mean, I'm just like, come on, educators. We, we can do a little bit better than this. I think, I think there was a lot of panic um, on the part of some of these schools um, to figure out, you know, nobody knew how long this thing was going to last, and I, and I get it. Um, but there, there, the rollout, I think, was was panic driven, um, and I don't think there was a whole lot of thought put into um, some things that that really should have been thought about. For sure, the socialization aspect um, was there. You know, um, my daughter logged in to a Zoom meeting, um, and all she saw was her teacher. She didn't see any of the other kids. You know, that would have been helpful. Um, you know, those those types of things. Um, in the expectation, you know, to conduct an entire day via Zoom as they would, because that was one of the things they did out here was like, oh, we're going to keep it very similar to the learning day. So take a lunch, log off, but don't forget to log back in at this time. And it's just like, again, you've already lost them. At <laughs> lunchtime, they're gone. <laughs> you had me at off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Done. And, and, and I think, I think the rollout was really poor. I think hopefully schools learned a lot, a lot about how to not do things. Um, it was just, yeah, it, it was just a mess. And I, I did not, like the way that the elementary rolled out their their program and, and all the things they had to do. And again, I'm also in in a situation where, you know, she doesn't have a laptop and she doesn't have, she has internet, she's got electricity, she's got a place, but, you know, I'm not going to buy a thousand dollar laptop for her to, you know, to do all that. She's, she's nine. I mean, she can barely handle a phone without an otter box and, you know, screen protectors. Like, you know, <laughs> these are things I don't trust her with. And so, you know, the idea that these kids had to have these things in order to do this stuff was also problematic for me. You know, I live in a, in a city where it's a, it's, it's very rural, you know, the, the, some of these kids, you literally can't get access to the internet. You're too far out, <laughs> you know, much less have access to a laptop, much less have access to all of these things that I think they just assumed that people had. And, and, and that was another thing that I felt really, um, really strongly about when it, the, the rollout came was like, I, my daughter doesn't have a laptop and I don't, I don't have, a, I don't even have a laptop, you know? So it's, um, it was, it's very interesting, uh, play out of events, I guess you could say, uh, was I was very unhappy with the districts, uh, specifically her school and her teachers. So. Well, and I come back to, you know, what you said about the, you know, the way we indoctrinate kids and we give them everything we're giving, giving, giving. And then Wilkie said it best, like when the pandemic started, he's like, we're, we've been telling and giving them everything and having them do exactly what we tell them. And then we expect them to do what 
none of us did until we were in college. Which is, I, I mean, even if even if you take away the virtual aspect of it, I had like a 2.4 my first year of college because I didn't understand the concept that if I didn't go to class, I didn't get credit. My mom wasn't there telling me I had to go to school every day. So some days I skipped and then some days I didn't and some days I did this. And I got that natural consequence of, wow, I need to manage my own schedule. And I was, I was 19 at that point. And I got a kick in the ass because I didn't have the ability to do that. And now, like, like you said, you're fourth grader to, to manage a, a, a virtual day the entire day. Like, I had difficulty managing my own virtual days. I literally, if I could show you, if I open up my phone, there are like, there were during virtual more timers, there were like 10 different timers that went off on my phone to remind me when I had every single thing. And to have a fourth grader, it just, it just seems so crazy and like like I, I really liked what you said Viv about we could have done a really robust like virtual learning program if we hadn't tried to make it into the same thing that they were doing in person because that's the problem that we had with my school is they tried so hard to make it like in-person learning when you were ne you were never going to make it the same thing it was it was never going to be the same. You could have done a really robust and more manageable virtual program for kids, depending upon their age. And you could have really, you know, you can expect an eighth grader to do more than you would a fourth grader. So, I mean, that's, that's really where I would be at, just ob obviously just from the teacher's perspective, but I would love for you then to kind of go into, because we, we got to talking when we met about the difference in your experience as a college professor from teaching in person versus teaching uh, online. So if you could go into that a little bit, I think that'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, I've, I've become a bigger fan of face-to-face -face now that I have taught remotely, um, especially in light of the forceful use of remote learning uh, for higher education through this whole pandemic. Um, I think there are benefits to online learning. I certainly, um, it was beneficial for me starting out as a single mom at 24 to do these classes online at community college and get my footing. Uh, I recognize that I'm driven in different ways, you know, not everybody has a hundred foot goal a year. Not everybody wants to write an essay after they read a book, you know, not everybody is an academic the way that I am. But remote learning really helped for me because at that time it was a necessity. And I feel like we've gotten away from that aspect of remote learning or online learning being a necessity, something that kids um, or, or parents or individuals looking to get back into their passions um, use as a way to, you know, get themselves up in their degree until they can do face-to-face -face classes when they get into their, their, you know, their upper levels. Um, we've kind of stepped away from that to where there's an over-reliance on remote learning. Uh, 
much in the way that there's an over-reliance on, on adjunct professors to take over some of these classes with uh, very little pay, no benefits, uh, no uh, prospect for tenure, no set schedules, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so, so I feel like the differentiation, um, the quality of, of learning that you get in a classroom is just so different. Um, there are things you can't teach online. There are things you shouldn't be teaching online. Chemistry is one. <laughs> History is another. English is one that these things just don't lend themselves to be taught in a virtual setting at all. Like you can, I can, it, but you're basically a proctor at that point. You're not an instructor. And so it, it sort of takes away a little bit from the education portion of it. Whereas in classroom, you know, you're with these kids, you're learning with these kids. They can ask you questions that, to be frank, if they have to email you to ask you a question that requires three follow-ups, they're not going to do it. So it's um, it was really interesting for me to see that as this whole pandemic played out, what my role was as an instructor and where I really felt the benefit of instructing should be. Um, it, it's just a very different ballgame when you're looking at the... The, the overarching um, sort of history of online learning to where we are now, I really feel like it's 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 not it's not as great, I think, as as uh, people would like to think it is. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. a, a lot of sense. Um, and you know, I would I think that if if you're going to go and I, I say this all the time, if you're going to go online, if you're going to go virtual things. There's a reason that, that if I wanted to teach virtually, I had to do before, there was a specific course that I had to take that they made me take to understand first how to manage a caseload. Secondly, how to how to structure and, and plan out lessons to not overwhelm students, but give them all the information. Like there's so many little nuances of virtual learning that's totally opposite of face-to-face -face learning. And I'm with you when you said that you're a bigger fan now of face-to-face -face now that you've experienced virtual. <clears throat> I, I, I said it last night at a dinner. I said, if I had to go back virtual full-time, I would probably leave, to, leave education. I would, <clears throat> I would too. I, I, I felt like I became more of a case manager to go and get kids to come to class than I did being an educator, educating kids while they're in class. Um, and I felt like the responsibility on me to be all of these things. Granted, I felt like I rose to the occasion. I feel like I did my best to engage my kids and do those things. Was it ideal? Absolutely not. Is it something I would have signed up for in my contracts? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, it's just, you have to prepare educators for teaching in a virtual, but you also have to prepare students for learning in a virtual. You know, Kyle and I, we, you know, we said it on a podcast before that, just because kids are, what did you say, digital, digital natives? Digital natives. Doesn't mean that they're digital learners. You know, they may be the generation that grew up with the iPhone attached to their hands, but do you know how to double space in Google Docs so that you can write this paper? using doubles? Absolutely not. You don't know that. 100%. That was one of the biggest things 
I mean, this was before the pandemic. Yeah. You know, these kids, they, they're, they're relying on Google Docs, so they don't know how to do specific things. Mm-hmm. So you give a student, well, for me, an incoming freshman, comp one, a simple assignment, write me a three-page essay. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, three pages of your MLA style essay, thesis sentence. Well, what's a thesis sentence? Okay, or I'm getting par- you know essays with three paragraphs because that's how they were taught. I had, I mean, it's to the point where I had a student come to me and say, well, you know, um, an essay is three paragraphs long with a topic sentence and you get to, you know, just like, you, they had these quotes. I Googled the quotes. The quotes don't exist because they were told, you know, oh, well, don't you just make quotes up? It's like, where, what? It's like, where are you getting this information? Like, they don't know how to navigate a world. They're, they're, they're actually very naive as much information as they have, but they also don't know how to form a sentence. You know, they, they, they write like a, a, a Twitter feed or like something you're posting on Facebook and they don't understand stuff like punctuation and capitalization. So those basic things are being lost, even though, yes, you're right. They are digital natives. This is, this is what they've grown up with. They're actually um, not prepared to communicate effectively in any way outside of these little quirky, look how witty and funny I can be with this gif, right? That's That fills in the blanks for my thoughts, you know? <laughs> it's, I, hear, it's I hear them talk about memes more than I hear them mm-hmm. talk about anything else. And the strange thing for me was when I went back, I've been back five weeks now, my in-person kids that came back to campus were all like, oh, are you going to keep Google Classroom open so we can do stuff online? I opened it up. Nobody's even asked about it. Nobody's turned anything in. you know. And I love what you said about there are certain classes you can't really teach online. Like, a discussion-based social studies class, which I think the social sciences should be like, that's why I chose the social sciences because unlike, you know, math or something, you know, like math, there's rules and there's principles and you're teaching these things, but so much of social studies is open to interpretation and discussion. And you can't do that on zoom when you've got 35 kids and there are 27 black screens. And, and I think I said last week or something like that to Will, it's like virtual, comparing virtual to in-person is like comparing a cactus to a rocket ship. Like there's, they're, they're total. And, and I think had we not gone virtual, cause there have always been times that Wilkie and I both talked about it. Like, you know, what do you think it would be to be a full-time virtual? You know, you have the freedom to work from home. You got a little more of that. I was like, no, once I came back in person, you, you don't, you can't even feel like you, you can't even quantify the difference between, between that. But, you know, for me, what you were discussing about kids not having basic skills, my kids now, when we're doing research, they are Googling something and then not even clicking on the website to then go copy and paste. They're Google, they're, they're, they're copying right off the Google homepage where you get like those three sentences. And it's like, yeah, I have, I have students quoting, um, you know, you, you do a Google search for a quote, a quote on happiness. You click on Google images. It, it credits that, that 
to, to so-and-so, but they're not even doing like the research to find out if that quote, if it's misquoted, where did that quote come from? How, you know, it's like they're, and they're literally putting in their, in their bibliographies, that image. I was like, what, what's happening? They don't know how to use a database. They don't even know what it is. You know, libraries to them are like a thing of the past. They're like relics or do, do these things exist? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to tailor my, my syllabus, you know, so now I have an assignment where they have to go to a library, have their things signed off by an actual librarian that they did this research. <laughs> you know, they can't use online stuff. And, and again, it's one of these things where it's like, you can't use an online resource, right? So, so nothing that ends with a, a, a .gov, a .com, a .edu, no online sources. So then they come back to me and they're just like, you know, I'm just like user databases. Well, databases online. Like, oh my God, like, okay, well, you just, you jumped the shark there. It is, you know, and I have to re, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different kind of re-education. Um, and, and it's just, it's bizarre that these kids who are so savvy in the digital world, have literally, what's a database? What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't know what a database is, but you can, you can, you can Google and you can jump through all these hoops and, you know, they can, they can make funny memes. They can edit these TikToks. They can do all this stuff, but they can't do a, a basic research. They, they can't quote something appropriately. They can't write an appropriate response. It, just a basic email, mm-hmm. basic email. You know, it's very, very interesting. <laughs> What's good, fam? Thanks for checking out this episode of Value. That's Value with our friend Viv Elliott. Uh, crazy, crazy, crazy how we met. Um, and just so funny, like we talked about and like Will said, the people you meet um, that you think you never would, but it was so fun to get a chance to talk with her. And uh, really that conversation I had with her and my wife when we were on our honeymoon was just amazing. So we hope you enjoyed this first part of the conversation, talking about her experience as a parent and as an educator. And uh, be sure to check back Monday for um, the second part. And then we're really pumped for next week, Friday, to release our most uh, recent podcast with Liz Kleinrock. Uh, her new book's coming out, Start Here, Start Now. Um, and we're really, really proud that we could support her. So we hope you have a great weekend. Uh, check out this episode. And thanks again for uh, being with us here on Value Adds Value.